I sometimes feel that um, we spend a little bit too much time trying to perfect things to the nth degree rather than getting deals across the line. Trying to make sure that you dot every I and cross every T, and and yes, you've got to do that to an extent, but you need to know when to when good enough is good enough. Alastair Hick is the senior director of Monash Innovation, tech transfer office for Monash University in Australia. And on today's episode, I talked to him about the challenges of university industry collaboration in Australia, the opportunities around increasing efficiencies of standard TTO procedures, and why virtual conferences cannot fully make up for physical meetings, particularly if you live in a remote country such as Australia. Alastair, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Jerry. Great to be here. To start with, can you give us an overview of Monash Innovation and the generator as well, perhaps with some key figures? Yeah, so I'll just um, tell you a little bit about Monash as a university first, because not everybody on the who's listening will will be aware of Monash. So uh, we're one of Australia's what's called the Group of Eight Universities, so equivalent to the Russell Group in the UK. We're a very large university, about eighty six thousand students. We have um, five major campuses in in uh, Melbourne, plus we have uh, campuses in Malaysia, and then we have joint research academies in both uh, Suzhou in China and Mumbai in, in India. And we're opening in Indonesia as well. So we're a large, comprehensive university operating across multiple jurisdictions and um, with quite a lot of research going on. So our research budget is around, in Aussie dollars, it'll be around between 900 and a billion Aussie dollars. So around uh, 450 to 500 million pounds a year. So a large, comprehensive university. So Monash Innovation with a tech transfer, or as they say down in Australia, the commercialization office for, for, for Monash. And we've been formally established as, as Monash Innovation since 2015. We've had various, like many universities, we've had various iterations of, of tech transfer offices. And um, in 2015, I, I persuaded the university to bring things all together in a, a single unit that we main, named um, Monash Innovation. So just to give you an idea, we've got 14 staff at present in Monash Innovation. Typically, in a, an average year, we'll get about 150 invention disclosures just under that. And we'll do about 35 to 40 license deals and spin out two to five companies on average. It, um, um, that varies varies year on year, and and that and then associated that we've also got the generator which I I also oversee, which is an entrepreneurial program for really driving a a, a a culture change in 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 entrepreneurship and innovation across our staff, our students, and some of our alumni, and that's a small team of five who do an amazing job of um, of uh, engaging with. Average year, about 6,000 different people across all their programs. It's, it's amazing. All the, and they run everything through from inspirational sort of um, seminars and lectures all the way through to an accelerator program, which they're in the middle of at the moment, where they take 10 teams through a, an intensive accelerator program and um, help those businesses get up and um, uh, uh, you either attract funding if they need it or go on to and we have we've had teams go on to Y Combinator in the US or some of the local versions here or attract funding from people such as IP Group, depending on what the what the teams are. Amazing. That's that's some stunning figures you have there. 
it keeps us busy. Well, yeah, I can imagine it would. Melbourne and Victoria have been particularly hard hit by the pandemic. As we're recording this, you're waiting for an announcement whether restrictions will be eased or not. Currently, you have a state of disaster. How has this crisis impacted your work? Yeah, it's it's been interesting. So what we've we're, we've been working from home since March, and what we what we saw at the start of um, the the sort of restrictions was that we did see a little bit of a drop off in in terms of disclosures and and things like that. But once everybody got into the rhythm of working from home, once the researchers and the academics had sorted out, you know, because they they were they were still having to lecture online and things like that. So there was a lot of time taken up on the academic side and getting a lot of uh, all that up and running. Once that finished, we've pretty much so so before the start of that, we were on for a record year that dropped us back a little bit. But then we've been parallel tracking what we did last year and at a fraction below where we were last year. So we're pretty pleased with that. And the same on the deal front, pretty similar. The other thing that we've done, put a lot of effort into, is that the generator has put all their programs online. So they now can run everything virtually, which we've been wanting to do for a little while. But we had to. We had no choice. And now they can now... So so we now have teams from Malaysia going through our programs. So our campus in Malaysia, they can go through our programs. And we'll be expanding that to our other campuses going into 2021. So that's actually been a driver for something that we've wanted to do. So we're, you know, although it was a lot of work for the team, it's um, it's been a great success. Yeah, I'm guessing even if you've planned it, if you then suddenly have to do it in the space of a couple of weeks, it's not uh, it's not a fun <laughs> task. But no, and and the team, it, you know, they hadn't even planned it for this year. It was like this is something on the to do list, and suddenly it went from being on, you know, number ten on the to do list to being number one. But um, so, but they are looking back, really looking forward to getting back onto campus because it's a big part of, you know, the whole building an ecosystem is that that contact and that networking and that just bumping into people all the time. And I think that's the thing that we miss the most, that those sort of random interactions or semi-random interactions that, that lead to discussions that go somewhere. So, so the routine work carries on really, really well, but it's, it's those extra serendipitous little interactions that we're missing at the moment. That seems to be a problem that everyone I've spoken to has has talked about the water cooler moments or the bumping into people in corridors and it's yeah they're just not happening and it's really difficult to recreate that virtually because there just isn't a platform to make that happen and yeah I'm sure if there was it would suck up just as much time as Slack and then no one would get any work done <laughs> it would that that and that and Zoom I don't think we'd have anything any other yeah. time left to do anything else so yeah yeah. Last year, you told Inparts that you have very little choice for much of our large-scale collaboration in Australia other than to work internationally. It's a part of how we need to do business when our local R&D is relatively limited. Um, Do you think that is a reality here to stay, or do you see the Australian ecosystem evolving to a point where more university industry collaboration can be done domestically? It is changing, so uh, and that's something that we're really pleased to, to to be able to say. And it's something as a university we're really committed to making making change. So a couple of examples: we um, we announced a very large partnership with Woodside, who's an Australian-based, uh, very large resources company, in helping them with a big energy transitions research program. So trans trans uh, transitioning out of fossil fuels into various types of renewables and, and, and things like that. So that's a really big 
collaboration that we we announced last year. And then an interesting one this year is um, a local biotech company that two of our researchers had set up. They then came to Monash um, just after they'd set it up. They came to Monash because we said, oh, we can help you do, do some of that stuff and help you get, get on their way. And um, they did a, a really significant deal. So they're in the um, natural killer cell sort of area in, in innate immunity and, and, and that sort of space. They did a massive deal with, with Gilead and their subsidiary Kite. And most of the research that's going on is coming back into the university. So that's, you know, there, there's significant FTEs coming back into the university to do that research. And that's going to expand over the next um, 12 months, that partnership. So we're starting to see those sorts of things happen, as well as deals that we've got with the likes of J&J through, through Janssen. And we do do a lot with some of the resources companies here, so um, BHP and, and, and Rio, but not, you know, there, there's real opportunities in the biomedical space because our, most of our biotech companies are relatively small apart from CSL. And so we often end up partnering those overseas although we'd love to, love to partner locally where we can. As that, I'm, I'm guessing the pandemic has impacted those international collaborations as well, or, or made them more difficult. It, it had, yeah, it has. It, it, I think it, what it's interrupted is, where, is getting them going. So the ones that are, that, that, that are working, so, you know, we've, um, have been going fine. You know, they've, they've kept going absolutely. But it's starting, it's starting those new discussions and those new interactions. And that's the difficult thing. And, uh, you know, that's the challenge. It's not the same, you know, doing virtual bio as doing bio in person. It's not the, it's not the same. Our researchers, you know, who, who will often, you know, in the Northern Hemisphere summer, they'll be, you know, we, we don't find them in the lab. They're, they're in, in the conference season in, in um, the Northern Hemisphere. In, in Europe and or the US, and they're talking at conferences where there are companies where they make connections, and then we build on on help them build on those. So that stuff's not happening. You know, there are lots and lots of virtual conferences, but it's just not quite the same. So we haven't seen a big impact this year, but I think we, you know, if things don't start to ease off into 2021, then we will start to see those those collaborations harder to to kick off. Yeah. On something slightly more positive, you've garnered a considerable amount of international experience. Uh, you hide it well with your Australian accent. You were the head of uh, Life Sciences for Cambridge Enterprise here in the UK from uh, 2002 to 2006. You're the chairman of the research committee for the Monash Technology Transformation Institute in Shenzhen. You're also the chairman of Knowledge Commercialization Australia, Australasia sorry, from 2015 to 2018. What is your impression of tech transfer internationally and are there any particular approaches from one country that you think should be adopted more broadly yeah so it, it it's um really interesting the 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 tech transfer community universities are i always describe this they're a bit like a parallel universe they're the same and they're the same but different wherever you go in the world so the academics are very similar they've got similar um, drivers and similar aspirations they want to do great research and the ones we work with want to help want to, to translate their research and they're really interested in doing that and doesn't matter where you go there is a significant subset of the academic community who really wants to do get involved in that so from that perspective you see that the same wherever you go all, all around the world 
what is different is you know some of the uh, both you know I've talked about um, industry a little bit, but um, it, it, you've got different local contexts that you're working in. So it it means things like we have to to work harder when we're coming from Australia to do a deal because we don't have the same contacts on the doorstep that you do have if you're in um, Western Europe or on uh, particularly on East or West Coast US. So, you know, we have to get on planes. We have to do that sort of thing. What I guess, you know, what, what I've seen over the years is, is, is a few things that really have, have sort of caught my eye. One is trying to not make things too complex. We, the, the, the jobs that we do are very multifaceted and we, we have to engage with a lot of stakeholders and a lot of get a, you know, line up a lot of different things to be able to get, get a deal across the line. I, I sometimes feel that um, uh, we spend a little bit too much time trying to perfect things to the nth degree rather than getting deals across the line trying to make sure that you dot every I and cross every T. And, and yes, you've got to do that to an extent, but you need to know when, to, when good enough is, is, is good enough. And that's, um, that only comes, in my view, from experience where you have, you, you've, you've been through that learning experience of what works, what doesn't work, what's important, and what's not important in a particular deal. So you might have a, a university where they're, quite risk averse, but yet the chance of something going wrong and the implications of that particular risk are pretty minimal or that they can be dealt with. And you learn that over the years as to how to best manage that. I, I, I think in terms of what, I, what I've learned is, and, and you'll have heard this from many people, is that it's all about relationships. It's all about building relationships. It's all about, and that's building relationships with your academics. So my team spend a lot of time talking to the researchers about what they're doing and what their objectives are and what we can help how we can help them and then for people like myself it's my job is to build relationships across the university to allow my team to do their job and give them the resources and the freedom to be able to do that and then building relationships obviously into investor communities into corporate communities and and other thought leaders so that people think when they think of Australia and they come, if, if people are interested in, in collaborating with Australian universities, we're usually on the list of the, the top couple they'll speak to. And that's how we want it to be. But that takes a lot of time and effort just to keep, keep on with the messaging and the stories about what you're doing and building relationships such that you can get your, your messages out there. Of course. The next one is my favorite question. You've been listening to the podcast, so I'm guessing you know <laughs> this one's coming. You were the director of additive manufacturing company Amaro Engineering until its IPO last year. It's a great success, of course. What is your favorite spin-out, either for its technology or its financial success that's come out of Monash so far? Is it Amaro? Um, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hedge my bets here and give you a couple of different answers. That's fine. And, and just illustrate, <laughs> illustrate what, what, why this job is both so rewarding and also, to, to, as, as we all know, can be quite frustrating. So, yeah. so Amaro has been a great success. It's, it's IPO last year, IPO'd at, at uh, 20 cents a share and was trading at just over 60 cents earlier today. So, you know, we're really pleased with how that's gone. But it nearly didn't end, nearly didn't end like that. It was a, it was a, there were lots and lots of challenges on the way 
of trying to establish a new company that was to for for a length of its time undercapitalized into a new industry where it was relatively easy for us to get Amero to work with a whole lot of large corporates on the research and development side, but to translate that into manufacturing and uh, really significant sales has taken much longer than anyone ever thought and caused a lot lot more um, angst than, than, than we thought would be the case. And I think one of the, the, the number of lessons that we learned out of that was that we had some challenges early on with some governance issues that we had to address and we sorted those out and um, getting the right shareholders. We didn't have the right shareholders at the beginning and the university actually took a very proactive role to sort out the shareholder register and um, so bought out a couple of shareholders in order to do that. And that enabled the company to sort everything out so that it was in a position to list you know, uh, with, with, with the help of a, uh, another investor partner late last, last year. But the commitment of the university from the highest level, and I mean from the highest level, was essential for that success. So, so that's, it, it's, it's one of those classic stories of perseverance, a lot of, you know, hard work and, and a lot of learnings, I think, in terms of, of, of you know, how, how to successfully run an early stage company that was both at the research end, but also it was selling things. And that's unusual for lots of companies coming straight out of a university. So it had both the research and development side, but it was also selling things to companies. And that also caused some challenges. The other what well, I'll, I'll just briefly mention two others. The first one is Monash IVF, which was a company that actually is pre predate almost completely predates my time at Monash. So just after I arrived at Monash, it was sold. We sold the company for about $200 million, of which the university took half. Wow. And the other half went to the founder clinicians who were heavily involved in the company. So many of your listeners won't know, but Monash did a huge amount of work pioneering early IVF work. So 15 of the world's first 20 babies born by IVF were Monash babies. Wow. Yeah. And so, so Monash established working with our clinician research. So that was based, as, as these things always are, on 10 plus years of research. And then the company took 10 years to get up and running, at, at which point it was profitable and, 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 and we sold it. But it established that this was something that could be done in Australia and that and at Monash. And that matters because it sets a precedent to say, this is possible, we can do this and we can be successful. So, and, and, and of course, the wonderful results that's had for thousands and thousands of families across Australia and more broadly as, as, is, is also a massive, obviously, wonderful benefit. But um, it showed that what we could do, and I think that's always been something that's really important. When you start to see those examples, you start to believe them. And then the last one I'm going to mention is a company where we don't actually have any equity in. We have a license to deal with. So it's a company that's called 4D Medical, originally called 4DX, that started up at the university about seven, eight years ago. Researcher and two of his PhD students developed some technology for basically lung function imaging. So you can do it in real time and measure real lung function. And what's interesting about that is that we we weren't in agreement with the founders as, as to things like valuation and, and how, how it should go forward. So rather than us saying, right, we're going to be 
you know, big bad university and, and insist you do what we want. We basically said to them, okay, so you, you can go ahead, form the company, we'll do a license deal to you on, you know, pretty simple and standard and, and reasonably easy terms. We allowed them access to various bits of kit. You know, they had to pay for it, but it was all agreed and set up really well. The principal investigator was given a 12-month sabbatical, said, you can go and work on the company for 12 months. At that point, you need to make a call as to what you want to do. And so, although it's not a traditional university spin-out, we put in place all the bits to, to allow them to be successful. Now, that company floated earlier this year, raised $55 million on the ASX, and is valued at north of 500 million Aussie dollars. And that's down to a huge amount of work from the team. But what I like about it is that in, in some institutions, we would have stopped them doing it. And we did the opposite of that. We actually enabled it to happen. And, um, you know, they've done all the work, but we, we, we were there to help them and to give them some supports along the way. And I think that's an important thing to say. So all those companies are very different in the level of involvement from the university. I think that's something that, that we're, you know, it's a, it's a sort of something that I've been driving at the university is, is there is no one right way to do these things. And what we try and do with everything that we do is have options. So options of support, options of, of routes to commercialization, options to start up or spin out companies. The university can either be involved or not involved. And, and um, that's proving to be really successful for us. So it's, it's giving us each opportunity and the, the team associated with it are unique. And we help navigate them through all those options that we set up, whether it's our partnership with IP Group, whether it's a partnership with another venture fund, whether it's going through our generator program, whatever it might be, whether it's proof of concept funding that we've got access to, we've got lots and lots of different ways to help. And it's um, let's find the best approach for this particular opportunity. You've mentioned IP Group. You were also direct founding director of the um, $30 million Trans-Tasman Commercialization Fund all the way back in 2008, back when a multi-university venturing um, fund was, was mostly unheard of, although you had, of course, already got Uniseed in Australia. Is there enough capital for Monash and the country more generally today? Could, could there be more? I mean, there could always be more money, but are you fine with what it's looking like at the moment? Um, so short answer is we can always do with more. The, the longer answer is a, is a bit more complicated. So when we set up the Trans-Tasman Fund with a couple of other universities in South Australia and in Auckland in New Zealand, we had $30 million to spend across five universities. Didn't go very far. And in fact, we didn't even spend all that. The global financial crisis hit and there were some challenges from the LPs in terms of asset allocation. So although it did make a positive return, it struggled. What's interesting is we're now in the situation where, you know, there are deals going on in Australia where people are raising a Series A that could be 10 to $20 million, which was unheard of. So in that respect, there, are, there is enough money for the right opportunities. However, what we, we, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of areas that are, that are still lacking. And those, those would be one sort of at the proof of concept early stage, a couple of hundred thousand dollars to get, a, get something up and running and just see if it, if, if it can um, be successful. 
And so the sort of thing that Parkwalk might do in the UK or something like that, at least to start off with, or what the original University Challenge Funds used to do in the UK way back in the day. And so there's opportunities there. And um, we're, I expect to see that those, those will be addressed in some way. So we're certainly interested in how we can fill that gap, whether we work with an alumni-based fund or something like that. To, um, to, to do something in that space. I'd be very surprised if in 12 or 18 months' time we haven't got something up and running in that space because we see that there's some great opportunities. We've got huge numbers of people who want to do things. We've got great technology. We just need to give them a little bit of help. So that's one, one space, and I think that will get filled going forward. And then the other space is in the, the sort of non-life science area. So, so in the life sciences and biotech, We've, we've had a long-established biotech community. We've had a number of funds um, who've done, you know, some of whom have done very, very well. And we generally don't, you know, we can generally find funds in, in that space. But in some of the sort of engineering and physical sciences materials areas, we do struggle a little bit, um, not just for, it's not just about the money, it's also about the expertise. And uh, yes, we work with IP Group, and we've we've um, had um, three investments with them in the past eighteen months, and that's great. But we have plenty more opportunities that we would be looking. You know, we're looking to partner and and to find investors for. So I think those are the two spaces that we are sort of believe that that there could be more done in. Our belief. So Australia has got a very large superannuation industry. So there's enough money around. There's no doubt about that. It's about demonstrating the next couple of years is about demonstrating track record, and then the capital will flow into those as though the opportunities that we've been working on in the last couple of years go through. They're, if if they're successful, then the capital will flow um, from that. So we're not worried about the that. It's the roots to that capital that we're when we're still, you know, so there's still a little bit of work to be done there. My final question, open-ended one: Is there anything? We haven't covered that you want our listeners to know about. Yeah, look, I think I'll just come back to what I was talking about with with options. And it it's on the one hand, we try and give all our individual technologies and, and opportunities as, as many options as we can. The the challenge with that is that if you're bespoke for everything, you spend a lot of time working on each individual opportunity, each deal. And that's just not sustainable. We don't have enough people to do that. And yes, my team work incredibly hard. But so what what I think I'm really interested in is the the sort of that how the sort of 80-20 rule, because probably, you know, 80% of the things that we do fit uh, you know, some some fairly standard criteria. And and how do we make those way more efficient than they currently are? How do we get things, you know, through the system much, much faster? And that's, uh, I think, a challenge for, for all of us. And I, I don't mean sort of twice as fast. I mean, 10 times as fast. I mean, really, because we're, we're wasting time and we're wasting opportunity. The amount of time we sometimes spend on negotiating interinstitutional or joint invention agreements and other things like that, that just slow everything down. Internal process that slows things down. What can we do about that? So there's a lot of things we can do there. And then really focus on the value add. You know, we're all being asked to do more with less resource. 
And the only way we can do that is to be way more efficient than we currently are. And some of the work that we do is inherently highly resource or people resource intensive. So the only way we can do that is to work out what are the areas where we can make things as easy and simple as possible. And, and um, you know, how can we make those processes for, for, for our researchers, for our investor partners, for our corporate partners as simple and easy as possible so that we can do, you know, re- make routine business routine. Big, uh, big challenge is still ahead there. <laughs> I, look, I think it's all doable, though. I think this is the, the reality is that if you want to, you can do it. And if your institution believes that you can do it, then you've got the ability to do that. So I think it's all doable. We've seen huge change in, in the industry in the past 20 years that I've been involved. We've gone from a whole series of one-off transactions that we used to do to building much more complex relationships and partnerships both with corporate partners and investors. And I think the complexity and sophistication of what we do is, is pretty amazing these days across the whole industry. I think we, we now need to work out, well, how, where are the bits that we can simplify? How can we, you know, what are the things that we can, you know, just make, make, that, make it just happen rather than having to go to jump through, you know, six different hoops the in the- hoops, yeah. yeah. Yeah, amazing. Well, I think that's that, that's some uh, some good closing words. Some uh, finishing mostly on a positive note. I like that always. Alastair, thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your day. I know it's probably dinner time for you now. <laughs> I shall let you get on with your day. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for uh, for being here. Thank you. Talking Tech Transfer is hosted by me, Thierry Hales. It is produced by Global University Venturing, a Morsonia Limited publication. You can find us at globaluniversityventuring.com, on LinkedIn as Global University Venturing, or on Twitter at GU Venturing. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from In-Ear Production. You can find them on inearproduction.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an interview. We'd also really love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or if you share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps us grow our audience. You can also reach out to me directly with feedback. Just email thelis at globaluniversityventuring.com. That is T-H-E-L-E-S at globaluniversityventuring.com. Until next time, have a great week, everyone. Goodbye. Do 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 do